Hello, this is Congressman Jim Clyburn, and I would like to welcome you to my podcast, Clyburn Chronicles. I have always been a lover of history. I see this platform as a way to connect history with the politics of today. This is so important because, as Judge Santiano once said, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. Each episode, my guest and I will have a conversation about the lessons of the past, the politics of the present, and how we must learn from those experiences to help shape the future. Thank you for taking time to listen, and welcome to Clyburn Chronicles. Thank you all very much for joining me in another edition of Clyburn Chronicles. Today, uh, we are talking about something uh, that's very, very current. Uh, And I have with me uh, someone uh, who is very, very capable uh, to really address the issues uh, of housing that we're going to talk about today. As many of you know, uh, my state of South Carolina uh, has some real challenges uh, when it comes to housing. And COVID-19 uh, has exacerbated some of those challenges. Several years ago, uh, Princeton University uh, did a study. And that study indicated that um, here in North Charleston, South Carolina, uh, the highest eviction rate in the country. Uh, And here in Richland County, Columbia, South Carolina, the eighth highest eviction rate uh, in the county. All of that before COVID-19. Now, when COVID-19 became an issue, uh, the federal government uh, did some significant things to address that issue. One of the things they did was to appropriate funds. Uh, first, back in December, $25 billion. And again, this year, uh, uh, the Rescue Act, another $21 billion to address the issue of evictions to keep people in their homes. And one of the people uh, who is an expert on this issue is with me today. Diane Yentel. Let me tell you a little bit about her. She is president and CEO of the National Low Income Housing Coalition, a membership organization dedicated solely to achieving socially just public policy that ensures people uh, with the lowest incomes in the United States uh, with affordable and a decent homes. She has over two decades of experience working on affordable housing and community development. Before joining the National Low-Income Housing Coalition, Diane was Vice President of the Public Policy and Government Affairs at Enterprise Community Partners, where she led federal, state, and local policy research and advocacy programs. Prior to Enterprise, Uh, She was the director of the Public 
Housing Management and Occupancy Division at the United States Department of Housing and Urban Development, where she managed a team overseeing the development and implementation of nationwide public housing policies, procedures, and guidelines. She also worked to advance affordable housing policies with Oxfam America and the Massachusetts Coalition for the Homeless and served for three years as a Community Development Peace Corps volunteer in Zambia. I wanna welcome her uh, to Clyburn Chronicles today and thank her so much uh, for the work that she's doing, trying to help us uh, get this program that seemed to be having some significant challenges in too many states. Get this program to doing what it's designed to do. And that is to keep people in their homes uh, so that uh, we can lessen the impact of COVID-19 and hopefully uh, prepare people uh, for life beyond uh, this coronavirus. And with that, let me welcome you, uh, Diane, to uh, Clyburn Chronicles and um, yield to you for whatever comments you would like to make. Oh, thank you so much, Chairman Clyburn. It's an honor and a pleasure to join you. And I look forward to the conversation. Well, thank you. Let me start with a question. Uh, and I suspect that uh, uh, you'll uh, uh, be able to answer all the questions I've got today, uh, and there are a few. Now, South Carolina uh, already had this eviction crisis uh, before uh, COVID-19, as I said earlier. And for many states, uh, the pandemic highlighted uh, what was already a problem. Uh, what does a viable and sustainable solution a uh, solution looks like to you uh, to this problem of evictions, both pre-COVID-19 and, of course, I suspect uh, you'll have some uh, added comments about post-COVID-19. Sure, yes. So to, to best understand the eviction crisis um, that we faced pre-pandemic and during the pandemic, we have to recognize where we were as a country even before COVID-19 came to, came to this country. And that was in the midst of a severe affordable housing crisis where we had a shortage of 7 million homes affordable and available to the lowest income people. So another way of saying that same number is for every 10 of the lowest income renter families, there were fewer than four apartments that were affordable and available to them. So because we had such a shortage of homes for the lowest income renters, we had about 10 million uh, low income renter families who were paying at least half of their income towards rent each month. And many were paying much more, you know, 60, 70, 80% of their income just to keep a roof over their heads. And so when you have such limited income to begin with uh, and you're paying so much of it for your home, you're always one financial shock away from missing rent, facing eviction, and in worst cases, becoming homeless. So before the pandemic, that financial shock might've been a missed day of work or a broken down car or a sick child. 
during the pandemic, the pandemic itself was that financial shock and the financial and and the financial fallout, the loss of jobs, the loss of um, hours at work, the loss of wages made it harder than ever for those same renters to cobble together what they needed in order to make rent. And uh, there were some resources, some protections, really a patchwork of federal, state, and local protections put in place early on in the pandemic that kept most people housed, kept most people current on their rent. And by fall of 2020, most of those resources had been depleted. So sure enough, renters started falling behind, pretty significantly behind. And by January of this year, um, they owed up to $50 billion in rent arrears. So the first thing that needs to be done, as you said, you know, Congress provided sufficient resources to help address all the arrears that renters accrued during the pandemic, but the money's getting out too slowly. So the first order of business is making sure that that money reaches tenants, addresses the, the debt that they owe, erases that debt, keeps them housed. Um, but then that money, as historic as it is, it does nothing to address the underlying shortage of homes that we had pre-pandemic. So all of those renters who struggled to pay the rent before the pandemic and during the pandemic, they'll continue to struggle to pay the rent after the pandemic, unless and until Congress makes the long-term sustained investments needed to keep people affordably housed. And you know, those solutions are things like universal housing vouchers for all eligible households, building more apartments and ensuring that they're affordable to the lowest income people through programs like the National Housing Trust Fund. Um, preserving the affordable housing that exists in our country, especially public housing, and rebalancing the power dynamic that tilts so heavily in favor of landlords um, and at the expense of low-income renters. So we really need a whole set of robust renter protections in this country. Well, thank you for that. I'm gonna get into uh, a little bit into the rental protection business because uh, I think you might be aware of uh, for several years now, uh, I've been working with David Price uh, up in the, uh, North Carolina because we found that so many uh, 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 people who are impacted uh, by this problem, uh, really uh, all they need is uh, legal representation uh, in the process uh, and they uh, might find themselves with a better outcome. And I'll get to that. But I, I want you to help frame this for me. Uh, we, you, you said what the problem is uh, nationwide. Uh, now, we all know uh, that COVID-19 has had uh, a particular uh, impact uh, on black and brown communities. Uh, and I would like uh, you to share uh, that, a little bit of that uh, issue uh, when it comes to uh, this housing crisis, uh, the uh, impact uh, that this has had on uh, black and brown communities. Sure, yeah, there are, there are tremendous racial disparities in our housing and homelessness system today that certainly existed pre-pandemic. In fact, in many ways it was by design because we had in our country decades of racist housing and transportation policies that purposefully put home ownership out of reach for millions of Black Americans. So that created this yawning 
generational wealth gap that exists today, where the average black household holds much less wealth than the average white household. This then creates these tremendous racial disparities in housing and homelessness. So for example, black Americans make up 13% of the general public. They are 40% of people experiencing homelessness and 50% of homeless uh, families with children. These kind of disparities don't happen by accident. It's through uh, deliberate, in many ways, public policy. And so these, these, um, these inequities were compounded by COVID-19. So Black and Native American families were disproportionately likely to uh, get and die from COVID-19. Black and Latino workers were disproportionately likely to lose their jobs during these historic job losses. And Black and Latino and Native American renters disproportionately fell behind on the rent during the pandemic. So when we talk about you know, the six and a half million renters who are behind on rent today, the majority of them are people of color. Well, thank you so much for that. Now, uh, I talked about the efforts I've undertaken with David Price um, uh, to try to provide uh, legal assistance uh, to uh, people who find themselves uh, in this kind of predicament. And we've been having significant success uh, getting the appropriations. Uh, but once again, it's just like the issue of uh, the $46 billion. Uh, you get the money appropriated, uh, and then you got to get it to uh, the people that need it, uh, or at least uh, to the people that deserve it. And I want people to understand, uh, this is not $46 billion that going into anybody's pockets. This is to assist rental, renters, people who um, are not going to spend this money. This is to pay their rent. And so the landlords who own uh, the units, we're trying to get the money to them. Uh, uh, and what we are finding is that some of the landlords uh, seem not to want to participate. And now, some of them who are not participating is not because of any kind of meanness on their part. Uh, it's because of other issues, which I would like for you to discuss a little bit, because I want what I try to do uh, with this program is for people to get a good, solid understanding of what the issues are, uh, not to push any particular agenda, but for people to know exactly what the issues are. Now, some of the problems are legit, and there are problems we may need uh, to educate people about. Uh, how about share? Uh, with our listeners, uh, some of why it is that some landlords uh, do not want to participate, uh, some who are refusing to participate. So yeah, we are finding a, a, a pretty significant number of landlords across the country, really, um, who refuse to participate. So in other words, can can get offered emergency rental assistance to pay their tenants arrears that are owed to them. And they say, no, they don't want the money. They don't want to participate in the program. 
So we found that uh, the reasons differ depending on whether they are larger, uh, more corporate landlords or some of the smaller landlords. So for the larger corporate landlords, we are finding that they make a, a financial um, decision that it's better for them in the long run to evict their current tenant, just eat the lost cost of the rent that's owed to them, raise the rents because in, in many markets now, rents are skyrocketing. In some places they're doubling, raise the rents, get a new tenant in and make more money in the long run. So some of the, and it's obviously the larger corporate landlords are the ones that can make that equation. The smaller landlords can't. Smaller landlords rely on rental income to be able to pay their own bills, keep the lights on, continue to maintain and operate their property. The smaller landlords are refusing to participate sometimes because there are um, what they would call concessions that are required of them in order to get the resources. So there are some programs that take the, want to take the money that's available and provide some longer term housing stability for the tenants who receive it. So they might say to a landlord, we'll pay the rent arrears that are owed to you. And in exchange, you have to agree not to evict this tenant for some period of time, or you have to agree not to raise the rent for some period of time. And some landlords refuse. They don't want to agree to those concessions. They walk away from the program. There's other smaller landlords, many in some communities, that operate um, unlicensed, informal, illegal uh, units, all different ways of saying the same thing. So if those units are unlicensed or illegal, you know, they're not legally um, able to, to get rent and certainly not to get back rent, even though maybe they've been collecting rent on those units and had families in them for years or decades. So the landlords don't wanna say, well, my unit is illegal, so I won't take the funds. So they say things like, I don't wanna participate in a government program or I don't wanna to have to produce my own paperwork. Um, it's a problem because many of those um, landlords who operate unlicensed units tend to house some of the lowest income and often the most vulnerable, the most marginalized people, undocumented immigrants or others in marginalized communities. So we have to find a solution to this. And the solution exists, it's just not being used enough. And that solution is to give that money to pay the rent arrears directly to the tenant so that they can pay the landlord. The landlord doesn't even have to be part of the process. That can help ensure that, again, that landlord gets the money that they need and the tenant doesn't carry more debt than they can pay off in their lifetimes. Um, it's a win-win for both, but not enough program administrators are, are implementing that right now. Well, would you share with us um, exactly where we are today in view of uh, these two uh, recent decisions? Uh, one, of course, by the uh, Center for Disease Control, uh, the CDC, uh, when it uh, extended the eviction uh, moratorium, and then the Supreme Court uh, has uh, said uh, that the CDC overstepped his bounds, uh, his boundaries, and therefore uh, they have um, uh, brought an end uh, to the cessation of, of evictions. Now, tell uh, uh, our listeners exactly where we stand in view of those two decisions, because you know, dates are important here. 
uh, and they only used to put these dates in the headlines. Right. So mm -hmm. the, the, the Supreme Court last week um, essentially struck down the CDC eviction moratorium, which is a, a really devastating ruling because the consequences of it will be severe and long lasting. The federal eviction moratorium that's been in place has been a lifeline that has kept tens of millions of families who otherwise would have lost their homes in the middle of a global pandemic safely and stably housed during it. And at this point, according to the Census Pulse survey data, there are six and a half million families with up to 15 million people within them who remain behind on rent. And now that the federal eviction moratorium has been struck down, they are at heightened risk of losing their homes in the coming weeks uh, and months. It's why the urgency of getting that emergency rental assistance money out to the tenants who need it really can't be overstated. We have already started to hear about spikes in eviction filings in uh, Mississippi, in Texas, in some other communities. And we certainly expect those, unfortunately, to increase in the coming weeks and months. And evictions, evictions can be profoundly traumatizing and destabilizing uh, at any time. And during a pandemic, evictions risk lives and they further, they further burden our already overstretched hospital systems. Evictions have been proven to increase spread of and potentially deaths from COVID-19. So it's a, it's a really devastating ruling. And what we are doing now is urging governors and mayors to step up and implement their own state and citywide eviction moratoriums and other protections uh, to keep tenants housed and to buy themselves more time to get this emergency rental assistance to these tenants before they lose their homes. Earlier today, um, I uh, uh, had some sessions with uh, the Secretary of, of HUD, Marsha Fudge, and she indicated that HUD had undertaken to do some things uh, that will um, uh, put some restrictions on what can or cannot be done uh, with this money. Uh, are you uh, familiar with exactly uh, what HUD recently did? Yeah, HUD has, HUD has um, gone as far as they believe their legal authority allows them to um, in protecting tenants who live in public housing, um, other kinds of HUD subsidized housing who are uh, Section 8 voucher holders. And what they've done is said that Typically, if a, a, a public housing administrator wants to evict a tenant who lives in public housing, they give two weeks notice. So HUD extended that time, they doubled it and said that there should be at least 30 days notice before a tenant can be evicted. And then they have also said um, at, that they intend to um, do much more to really strongly encourage, if not require, public housing authorities to not allow for evictions to proceed if a tenant has an application for emergency rental assistance pending. In other words, if they're just caught up in the system, they've done everything right, they filled out their application, they're just waiting to get the money, 
they shouldn't be evicted. They should that that eviction should be paused until that emergency rental assistance can help avoid it altogether. So those are some of the actions that I know HUD has taken. They've also been working really closely with the Department of Treasury um, to provide some additional technical assistance to try to get some technical assistance and potentially even capacity building funds out to some of these communities that are slower spenders to try to get that money out faster. Um, so I think they've been they've been trying a number of different tactics to help keep uh, tenants stably housed and to get this money out to them. Well, one of the things that seems to be raising a few eyebrows when it comes to this program uh, is the fact that in the law, uh, and I'm being uh, I'm leading you a little bit here. Uh, but in the law, uh, it is clear that if this money is not used uh, in some special uh, last period of time, uh, that the money uh, can be reprogrammed. Now, a lot of people are suspicious of that. Uh, and they're thinking that maybe uh, what some states and locales are doing uh, is by design uh, to wait it out. Uh, so that they can reprogram this money for other purposes. Do you, would you address that for us? Well, I worry about that a little bit myself, to be honest. I worry that some of these, um, some states that have historically not prioritized renters, you know, not had any kind of programs or protections for renters in place, um, might not mind having this money be swept back. Early on, when Congress first provided these funds, there were a few, there were about a handful of states that were considering rejecting the funds altogether. Um, and some are still suggesting that they might do that with the second tranche of funds. So I think it's something to be aware of. The good news about the way that this money will be recaptured is that it's not gonna be up to the governor or the mayor, let's say, to decide what else they wanna use these funds for. These funds can only be used to address rent arrears, utility arrears, or future rent payments. What would happen is that the Department of Treasury would sweep these funds back and then reallocate the funds to another entity or another community that is spending the money well. So it's not a, it's not going to be up to the governor. They they don't really have that incentive to slow walk um, these funds with the hope that they can use it for some other pet project because they won't have the opportunity to do it. But we do have to make sure that when these funds are recaptured, that tenants in those communities aren't harmed. So we have to make sure that if a state or a city or a county isn't spending the money, the funds are recaptured. There's still an opportunity for tenants in those communities to get access to those funds. So um, one of the things that we're recommending to Congress as Congress, Chairwoman Waters is starting to put together a bill for some changes to the ERA program. And one of the things that we're recommending is that the definition for an eligible entity who can receive these funds and distribute them be broadened to include like community action agencies that I know you know very well or other community-based organizations where if they had this money they would be getting it into the hands of the tenants who need it the most to stay housed. So I'm hopeful there might be an opportunity to redistribute the funds in that way to get it to those organizations that are, you know, live and breathe and work in these communities, know who needs the help and know how to get the money to them. 
Well, you know, we, it, it, it's kind of interesting when you have these kinds of crises, like uh, the whole umbrella here is uh, COVID-19. Uh, you go in and you uh, offer assistance and you tend not to take into account uh, those entities that are already there. Uh, many of them have been operating for years on shoestring budgets, uh, trying to do uh, for uh, the least of these. And all of a sudden, all this money comes, and then we look around for other ways uh, to get the money out of the door. Uh, I remember uh, the PPP stuff. Uh, uh, we looked around and um, we had to get it to the banks and then the banks uh, took care of their uh, longtime favorite customers. Uh, and we had other little uh, community-based organizations, finance corporations, credit unions. In the beginning, they were not eligible. Uh, then we had to go back and say, wait a minute, we got these things here. These people... Uh, or in the communities, a lot of credit unions run by churches, uh, other in, uh, community-based organizations, and they were not eligible. And we had to go back and make them eligible. Uh, so uh, do you think uh, we need to do anything like that here? You seem to be that, implying that. Yes, I think that could be a big improvement to the program. And to be honest, it's more how the program was initial, uh, initially intended and initially designed. Uh, initially, the idea for an emergency rental assistance program, well, one, it was meant to be passed much earlier in the pandemic so that it could help people stay current on rent and not fall behind. So, you know, the House of Representatives passed emergency rental assistance three times last spring in May, June, and July, but it wasn't until late in 2020 that the Senate acted on it. The, the, the legislation that the House initially passed the emergency rental assistance was supposed to go through the Department of Housing and Urban Development, given the deep expertise that they have in the building. And it was meant to go to many of these community-based organizations for them to distribute. But it was in the final negotiations in the Republican-controlled Senate um, in December of 2020, where some last-minute decisions were made to have it go through the Department of Treasury and go to entities that don't have don't always have those boots on the ground in the communities that have the greatest needs. So it would be a big improvement um, if we were able to go back to some of what was initially intended to get this money to those community-based organizations so that they could get it to, to the tenants who need it. Well, you know, I, um, I'm pleased to hear that. And I, I don't know uh, what... Uh, we can do at this point. I do know this, uh, that when I look at the, um, the bipartisan uh, so-called infrastructure bill that, uh, uh, that has passed the Senate, and we in the House side have scheduled it for a vote uh, sometime before, uh, some date in September, uh, before the end of the month anyway. Um, and that's a bill that, um, uh, we'll probably pass the House and go straight to the president. Now, there's another piece of legislation that everybody is talking about is the so-called uh, uh, Build Back Better budget, um, uh, up to $3.5 trillion to be allocated, uh, allocated for certain things. 
appropriate, I guess is the best way to put it, uh, for certain things. Um, now, I, I, I caution people that 3.5 is a ceiling. You look at the legislation, uh, we'll be negotiating up to 3.5. Uh, it might be 2.5 or just 3. Point. We don't know what it's going to be. What I do know that in this infrastructure bill that the Senate passed, there is not a whole lot there for housing. And it seems to me that if we're going to deal with this housing issue, then we need to be looking at that up to 3.5 trillion uh, build back better. Uh, would you have any uh, thoughts about that, what we need to do? Yes, absolutely. Agree. It's a, you know, some people have been talking about the Build Back Better agenda as a once in a generation opportunity. I think it might be a once in a lifetime opportunity to end homelessness in our country, to really, truly, and at long last, address the underlying housing crisis that has existed in our country for decades and that has most harmed the lowest income, the most marginalized renters and predominantly renters of color and people of color. Um, so it's a, it's a tremendous opportunity. And in the, um, if, we, if we keep that ceiling of 3.5 trillion and certainly we in our network will fight uh, to back you all up to try to keep it as high as possible, we could be looking at as much as $332 billion in housing investments over 10 years. That could be transformational if we target those funds towards those with the greatest needs. So we have been urging that, that, that $332 billion for housing investments be used to expand Section 8 voucher rental assistance for the lowest income people who need it the most. Uh, $180 billion over 10 years would mean about two and a half million more families could be served with Section 8 vouchers. We could end homelessness with that kind of an investment. We're urging uh, $45 billion in the Housing Trust Fund, which is the only federal housing program that builds apartments that are affordable to those lowest income people, and $70 billion to repair our public housing infrastructure to make sure that it's available for the low-income renters who need it today and who will need it in future generations. So we're certainly mobilizing around this opportunity because I do think it is a tremendous opportunity. And just like 2020, you know, we'll remember as the year of the pandemic, the year when racial inequities were brought to the forefront in so many ways, I think 2021, if we get this, if we get this Build Back Better bill right, 2021 could be the year that we look back as the year that we began to end homelessness in our country once and for all. Well, I'm very uh, pleased that you uh, have gotten into that because I think it is very important uh, for us to say uh, to our listeners, if you are interested in housing, uh, then let's focus on these programs that we can put in that $3.5 trillion uh, bill, build back better. I keep telling people we need to look at how much it's going to cost if we don't do these things. Uh, $3.5 trillion 
maybe peanuts uh, when you think about uh, the cause of continuing uh, homelessness and other uh, shortages we get in the housing. And I think that if people focus on these kinds of things and not worry about that number, because you just talked about a very small portion of that, uh, that be, can be committed to housing. And when we do the kind of things that you're talking about, yes, we'll be meeting a social need, but we'll be creating uh, jobs. We'll be creating uh, an economy. Uh, when you start building houses, uh, you're going to take care of a lot of bricklayers, a lot of carpenters, a lot of electricians, uh, a lot of plumbers, a lot of landscapers. All of that uh, turns uh, when housing is done. And so I want to thank you for all the work that you do uh, in this area. And I look forward to working closely with you uh, over the next several uh, weeks as we uh, take hard looks at what will go into uh, Build Back Better. Uh, and I just want to say to our listeners, uh, as an example, if you look at this bipartisan infrastructure bill that passed the Senate and was sent to the House on the issue of broadband, for instance, we uh, have a program to build out broadband for every home in America. It will cost about $96 billion. But if you look at the infrastructure bill, it's only $65 billion. So when people tell you that all we need to do is pass the bipartisan bill and we have done what needs to be done, and don't need to look at the Build Back Better bill, I want you to ask them, if it costs $96 billion to do broadband, and that bill has only got $65 billion in it, that's two-thirds of what is needed. What communities will this two-thirds get uh, uh, attended to or attend to as opposed to what communities will fall in the one-third category. I think we know from the history of the country why we've got to do this thing for everybody. Because the two-thirds, I know what communities are gonna get the money. And that's the kind of thing we have to do with housing. That's what we had with that, um, uh, what was it, the so-called, the big tax cut. That big tax cut eviscerated low-income housing uh, because uh, the kinds of tax credits you got for the low-income housing, most of that went away uh, when we dropped the, the corporate tax rate down to 21%. Uh, I'm sure it was unintended. Uh, I would like to think that anyway. So these things work together. Uh, to make for a holistic approach to uh, solving the problems in this country. So I'll thank you for all the work that you've done in the past and what I know you're going to do going forward. Uh, I look forward to working with you. And uh, as we bring this to a close, do you have any closing comments, anything you want to uh, uh, say to our listeners 
or anything you want to tell me that I need to be doing. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for your for your tremendous leadership for so many years, so many years being such a true champion for low income people and people in poverty. And I, I greatly admire um, and respect all of the work that you've done. And it's such an honor and a pleasure to talk with you today. So thank you for your leadership and thank you for the opportunity. Well, thank you so much for being here with you. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, this has been another edition of Clyburn Chronicles. I look forward uh, to being back with you again next month this time. Thank you for listening to this episode of Clyburn Chronicles. If you enjoyed this episode, please let us know by leaving a comment. And don't forget to subscribe to my show wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss an episode. Until next time, I'm Congressman Jim Clyburn.